The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. Today on Government Matters, transformation at the Department of Veterans Affairs, modernizing health records and bringing VA into the 21st century. Taking care of veterans and preventing suicide, VA Deputy Secretary James Byrne tells you what's on the agency's agenda. And improving morale in the workforce, what you can learn from the intelligence community. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Veterans Affairs transitions to electronic health records at five new locations in the next several months. VA is also taking steps to improve its acquisition process. James Byrne is Deputy Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs. Marjorie Sensor asked him about transformation at the agency. The VA is in the, the midst of, uh, I would argue, the, one of the greatest transformations that our nation has undertaken in how we take care of our veterans. And, and if I can for a second put it in some historical context, the, the first major transformation for our nation was, was back with Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War, where he signed legislation to create soldiers' homes for wounded and sick soldiers. And then that next day, he charged our nation to care for those who bore the battle, a whole nation effort which is a theme that we'd like to carry forward to today. The second major transformation, as you might guess, was World War II. 11 million men and women in uniform who liberated Europe from the Nazis, put Japan back in a box, and what they did was simply amazing. But most of them returned back to the United States within a, within a short period of time, relatively a couple months. And the concern was uh, tasked with uh, General Omar Bradley, was tasked by the president with, with assimilating these folks back into the United States. And there was a, a little bit of pessimism. Um, we had just been in a depression before the war. The concern was maybe we go back into a depression again. They took measures to take care of 780,000 wounded service members from World War II. They built uh, brick and mortar facilities, over 100 of them around the United States, to care for those injuries. They created legislation to uh, provide care in the community, something that we're still doing to this day and we've done for decades to allow these veterans to, to thrive and have a good life. But two other pieces of legislation that, that our Omar Bradley led uh, following World War II was the Guaranteed Home Loan, which we still do today, allowed these veterans to come back and assimilate into the, to build families, build communities, and then education which are, we still do to this day. And, and those veterans, those 11 million veterans, millions of them took advantage of it. Many of them went to four-year colleges that before World War II were exclusively uh, preserved for, for the elites within our country. Community colleges, many of those popped up around the United States to give them two years of education and then technical training and, uh, and, and trade schools. And, and not to be too dramatic, but with that assistance, with that investment in these veterans, uh, they shaped the remainder of the 20th century and put us on the economic wave of prosperity um, that we are still riding to this day. And so now we're in the third, um, uh, I think, major transformation in how we take care of veterans. And uh, the Secretary has outlined his priorities and how we're actually going to do that. What are the top priorities for the Secretary in this, in this transformation? Sure, so thank you. So the first priority is customer service. A little bit more of a principle maybe than, 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 uh, than, than some of the other metrics that we're measuring. But if we don't get 
customer service right, veterans don't want to come to us, then all of these efforts are sort of for naught. So we always keep our eye on, on that priority. Uh, another priority is um, implementation of the Mission Act, which is that community care that I talked about in following World War II, veterans getting care where they need it, when they need it, so that they can thrive and be well. And so Mission Act, or CHOICE as it's called, um, it, it, we're, we're, we're revamping and implementing in that so that it's easier for veterans, easier providers, and more economical for the taxpayer to actually implement. And then there are several provisions that are added on to that too, um, like urgent care and things like that, that we're pretty excited uh, that, uh, that we're implementing going forward. We started in June successfully and we're continuing to do that over the next year or so. Modernization effort, and that's the big that's the big heavy lift for the VA to build that VA that I was talking about for the 21st century, a modern VA, modernizing the IT infrastructure, uh, modernizing our supply chain, modernizing our financial business systems, uh, our appeals system, um, um, HR systems, doing those all at the same time. It's a heavy, heavy lift. They're all major lanes of effort, and they're all interconnected. And of course, EHRM that you mentioned too, Electronic Health Records Modernization, that is a $16 billion effort that is going to change the way we uh, take care of our veterans and hopefully will have an impact, not hopefully, it will have an impact on the way we provide care to our citizens. And then I say it last, but it's certainly not least, and that is our suicide prevention efforts. Um, uh, that, that is a, a, the number one clinical priority of the Department of Veterans Affairs and something that we, uh, we think about every day and, and, and work toward uh, remedying. You mentioned sort of the heavy lift of, of modernization. What are the challenges there? Is it money? Is it resources in terms of people? Is it something else that I'm not thinking of? No, you, you, that's, that's a great, it's a very fair question. And, and what it is is we're just doing a lot at the same time, right? If we had uh, maybe the luxury of phasing it in over 15, 20 years, then, then, then it wouldn't be as hard. We, we are uh, fortunate that we are well-funded by Congress, the American taxpayer. I think we have a great leadership team and we have, have great employees to implement it. It's just the realization that it is hard doing so many things that are codependent on each other at the same time. And uh, I, I'm really proud of the, the team as they're moving these things forward. We're building up a lot of great momentum and, uh, and, and you should be proud of your VA and, and proud of what we're doing. And um, let's talk about also the benefits you think that you'll get out of this modernization. Um, is it really, you think, going all the way down to veterans, or do you think it's more focused on um, some of the back office things that maybe will, will have a more indirect benefit to veterans? All of the above, and I will include being uh, good stewards of the taxpayer money. It'll be uh, the fiscally responsible thing to do too. We'll save money as well. But you're right, customer service, about the provisions of those care benefits and services to those veterans, they will see results very, very soon with all of these efforts. And it's overdue. It's overdue, and uh, I'm proud of the team doing these behind-the-scenes hard things um, for veterans. Up next, more with Deputy Secretary James Byrne. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the agency's new approach to suicide prevention. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. The electronic health record modernization is VA's largest project right now. Its biggest mission may be preventing veteran suicide. James Byrne is Deputy Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs. Marjorie Sensor asked him how the VA plans to prevent veteran suicide. So suicide is having a, a tremendous negative impact in our country. It affects veterans one and a half times uh, the population of the United States, and then women veterans, it's twice 
the, no, the number of the normal population. And so it is the number one clinical priority of the Department of Veterans Affairs to prevent and reduce the number of suicides uh, in our nation. We have some programs I'd like to tell you about, um, and I also want to tell you about a new initiative, a new effort uh, led by our president and by our secretary. But we have programs that are in place, and we'll continue to, to keep those programs robust. And, and some of those programs include the, the $9, million, $9 billion that Congress has appropriated for mental health, but there's a whole lot more to it than that. We have um, cri uh, veteran crisis phone lines that receive 1,800 calls a day from veterans or family members who are concerned about their veterans who are in crisis. And of those 1,800 calls, about 80 of those um, require emergency intervention, law enforcement and EMS to, to, to reach out to those people who are in distress. And so it's a, it's a, those are serious numbers, and we're not going to let off on that, that, those programs at all. We have um, suicide prevention counselors, 400 of them around the country, who have veterans that are assigned to them who are, who are uh, at risk, essentially. And it's either they've demonstrated that they may want to hurt themselves, or there are red flag indicators, even before they've demonstrated or had ideations, where we can reach out to these veterans and proactively um, provide them the treatment and holistic care that they need. And it's not just mental health. There's a lot of other factors that actually go in to uh, suicide uh, prevention. Um, so we've had those, those, those 80 interventions a day I'm talking about. We've also had, um, since we started tracking it about 18 months ago, we've had nearly 300 physical interventions on our facilities um, where a veteran was trying to hurt themselves and we've had to physically intervene. I don't mean ideations or statements. I mean they physically tried to hurt themselves on our own properties. And so uh, I'm tremendously proud of those efforts to, to stop that, but I think we would all recognize that we need to move it back to the left, right? What, what are the conditions that are, that are, that are driving this behavior? And, and so what, one of the things I'm particularly proud of that I'd like to share with you and your, and your viewers is uh, the Prevents Task Force that was put together under an executive order uh, by our president that's being led by the White House and by Secretary Wilkie at the Department of Veterans Affairs. And it is an effort to harness the resources of this great nation, sort of focus the greatness of our country. And I include all the executive branch, state and local authorities, academia, uh, nonprofit organizations, private sector. And uh, w w the, that is rolling out here actually within the next several weeks about how we're going to actually implement that. Congress is in the process of funding some grants to go ahead and facilitate that. And that, that is the, uh, the message I'd like to deliver is that taking care of our veterans is a whole nation effort. And this Prevents Task Force is a classic example of that. And it does mirror some of the efforts and successes we've had with homeless veterans. We've seen some real successes in at least 38 communities are essentially at virtually zero and several states are in the same capacity. And so we're using that same model of harnessing the resources of the United States and not just saying, hey, it's a VA's problem, their veterans are in the corner. Yeah, it, it certainly seems like a problem too big for just the VA to solve. Does this task force try to involve community organizations, state and local, um, you know, maybe some other federal agencies? What, where, are you, where are you getting resources? Everything you just said and more. And, and essentially, it's anybody who wants to come under the umbrella, we invite them to do so. Um, and, and that's what the task force is all about, harnessing the, the resources of our country, where the veterans are, so that they can be well and thrive where they are. I would suggest to you, I want them to come to the VA. I think we do a magnificent job. Our numbers reflect that as well, not only with satisfaction, but the quality of care, in, in, in particular in mental health. But the reality is they may not want to come to the VA. They may not, for some reason, feel, they want to go somewhere else. 
and where they go, we want to help that organization help the veterans. That makes sense. Or force multipliers. And I know you have this roadmap that you're working on at the task force. What should we expect in terms of actual, you know, actions from the um, task force this year? So with, within the next several weeks, the, the, the roadmap is going to be unveiled, um, and, it, and it should be sort of a to-do. And there'll be monies that accompany that to grants to organizations, local organizations, state organizations, um, the organizations you talked about, the nonprofits, the academia, et cetera. And we should see tangible results here very soon. And that's what we're wrestling with right now. We want to see results. We want to be good stewards of the taxpayer money, but we also want to see results starting immediately, right? We want to get those numbers down to zero, actually. That's what we're driving for. And just over a minute to go, um, you know, I'm interested in talking about the results and the time frame. Um, you know, do you have set objectives? Is there, obviously you can't fix this overnight. What is a reasonable time frame and, and do you have goals for those metrics over time? So I don't want to get out ahead of the framework, but that's exactly what the framework does. It's going gonna, it's gonna to outline how we're working with these communities and these partners around the country, some timetables for that, and then the metrics we're going to use to try to measure the success. And um, is there anything you need from Congress as you're as you're doing this? Uh, right now, they, they are working on on the funding of the grant component, right, to those state, local authorities, nonprofits, uh, academia, and anybody else. They're working on those right now, and and I'm confident they're going to come up with a with a with a healthy healthy funding and a healthy program to support what we're doing. Will that be unveiled as part of the roadmap, or is that a separate effort? Yes, ma'am. No, those are those are co-joined together. You can watch the entire conversation with James Byrne at GovMatters.tv. Up next, lessons to learn on employee engagement from the intelligence community. Straight ahead on Government Matters, Assistant Director of National Intelligence Sherry Van Sloan tells you how the IC improved employee engagement and what you can learn. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. The new Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey ranks the intelligence community among the top agencies for morale. Its score went up more than three points from last year. Sherry Van Sloan is Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Human Capital, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Sherry, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Congratulations. What are your secrets of success? Everybody else wants to crib on you. Well, well, I don't think it's really a secret sauce. Um, I think there's a culmination of things that we've done over the last couple of years mm -hmm. to really engage our workforce differently. Um, we looked into our data this year because of the jump in score. And some of the themes we saw that where we scored the highest this year were on employees feel like their work is important. Mm -hmm. And also they feel like there's good communication and good feedback with their supervisor. And those are kind of two key factors of engagement, right? If, if, if the employee feels like they're, they're doing great work and they're really engaged, th those are key factors, mm -hmm. right? So um, when we peeled that back though, I think if you keep it, you know, go back to basics a little bit and, and go back to what our principal executive, Andrew Hallman said at the PPS ceremony, um, it's about our people, it's about our leaders, and it's about our mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think if we take care of the people and we make sure that they have an inclusive environment to come to work every day and feel like they're part of something bigger, and if we're training our leaders to build that environment and to build that culture, um, and if we keep that mission on the cutting edge where we are every day, where we're facing new challenges and new threats, um, there's nothing like our mission, right? So those are kind of the three really uh, key factors, and mm -hmm. I think he had it absolutely right. I think it, it's, it strikes me that mission in the IC is not difficult. Making an employee feel like they're doing something very important, that's a pretty much a no-brainer. 
the part where the manager, supervisor, is listening mm -hmm. to me, that's been tough to crack all yes. across the government. What do you think that you did in the intelligence community to foster that between employee and, and leader? So we've really been focusing on that mid-level manager where they have a lot of impact on the employees, mm -hmm. right? So we even mentioned it in the National Intelligence Strategy about focusing on mid-level managers and giving them the tools and the training and holding them accountable in ways that we haven't before to mm -hmm. make sure they're actually engaging in ways that they should. And holding accountable doesn't necessarily just mean grinding on the people who do it wrong, right? That's it correct. means lifting up the people who are doing it well and saying, here's how you could do it too. That's correct. And so we've really been looking at private industry models for performance management mm -hmm. and we're trending that way to look at how do we engage the employee throughout the year and touch points throughout the year, not just once a year when it becomes the end of the year and the end of the performance cycle. Mm -hmm. Let's talk to those folks throughout the cycle and engage when folks are doing well, let's reward them in ways that we maybe haven't before. And when folks aren't doing so well, let's address that early and give them the tools and training they need to succeed. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a whole different way of looking at performance management. What have you been able to do for employees that are performing well on kind of that uh, basis, that throughout the year basis? So we're really shifting away from that annual bonus because mm -hmm. sometimes that's too late to really feel like you feel the impact of what you've done. Yeah. We're shifting to on the spot, kind of real time cash awards, performance awards, to let folks know they're doing a good job and mm -hmm. to really highlight that with the workforce. How are you doing those evaluations or how are the managers doing those evaluations so that the other employees can feel like they're getting a fair shake too and somebody's not being singled out because the boss just happens to like them or something. So we're trying to push those award pots of money down to the lowest level possible so that those supervisors who are seeing the day-to-day -day actions of their employees, they have that ability to execute those funds. And so we're really, if, if we take that performance management process we're talking about where there's continuous feedback, continuous engagement, you're gonna know how well you're doing throughout the year. There's, there's gonna be touch points along the way. So mm -hmm. it shouldn't be a surprise at the end of the year or it shouldn't be a surprise when you get rewarded. You know you're doing good work because you're getting that feedback. So this is a great result for one year. What is your intent, what's your strategy to embed these kinds of things so that you enjoy continuous growth in the mm -hmm. coming years? Yeah, so we have a current initiative ongoing in the, work, uh, the intelligence community called the Right Trusted Agile Workforce. Uh, and this initiative is really focusing on the way we work, the place we work, and the environment we work in. And so we're really looking at ways we can um, understand the future of work mm -hmm. and place ourselves ahead of the game, right? So we're looking at ways we can engage with industry in different ways to get that cutting edge expertise in and out. Um, we're really looking at ways we can think about the IC as one IC, whether we have 17 elements of rich culture and rich history, there's still part of a bigger enterprise called the intelligence community. So we're looking at ways we can make folks feel like they're included. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're also looking at ways to, um, you know, Think about how we work and where we work. So does all the work we have to do be in the Washington DC area? Maybe not. Maybe we can tap into talent markets and talent pools across the country in different ways than we are today mm -hmm. and do that work there. So we're really kind of thinking out of the box on how we think about our future workforce, but also creating that um, retooling ability for our current workforce. You know, if we understand the trends that are coming our way and the technical challenges we're gonna face with technology changing so rapidly and our targets and our, our, our um, threats changing so rapidly, mm -hmm. we've gotta be able to address those now mm -hmm. and get ahead of the game. You've mentioned a couple of times your interaction and your examining of best practices from private industry. Mm -hmm. What have you seen from private industry that applies really, really well in the intelligence community? And what have you seen that works maybe well in the private sector, but you go, we either have to tweak this, or maybe it's just something that doesn't fit in an environment like the intelligence community? 
So I would say one of the biggest factors we see that's different um, is just the pay structure. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're continuing to fight with uh, the competition for talent is continuing to be, you know, just uh, a real drive. And, and, and um, pay is going to be continue to be an issue. Mm -hmm. um, where we can try to, we are. We're looking at STEM pay scales today and raising those for those kinds of critical skills that we're looking for. Um, but that will always, I think, be a factor on how the private sector um, compensates their employees and how we do. At the very beginning of our conversation, talking about wh why you think you were successful in raising your scores, you used the word inclusion. You've used it a couple Absolutely. of times since then. What does that word mean in the context of what you're trying to do at the IC? People seem to look at it in different ways. So when we talk about inclusion, it's, it's, a, it's a word that means lots of things to lots of people. And, but it means that we have to create a culture, an environment, a workplace where anybody from any walk of life, any background, any race can feel like they're part of the organization and they're contributing to mission. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to think about that from the way we have our employee resource groups so folks can engage in a group of folks where they feel like they're comfortable. And those ERGs, those employee resource groups, have to be heard from. Leadership has to take those seriously and really take in what they're saying to them and make sure that we're you're using our words for, for good. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a, a big movement on how we think about inclusivity. Um, an inclusive environment, an inclusive workforce brings a diverse workforce, mm -hmm. right? If you don't have that, that inclusiveness in the workplace, you're not going to draw a diverse workforce, which we critically need. We have about 30 seconds left. What would you tell a peer of yours somewhere else in the government, no matter where, what she could do to improve inclusion at her organization? Um, listen to your employees. Mm -hmm. Listen to the folks that you don't go to every time. You, you, you know, we tend, to, we tend to pick a couple of people that we go to all the time because they're comfortable with you and you know them. Open your aperture. Listen to all your folks. Really kind of engage in different ways that you just don't on a day-to-day -day basis. Sherry Van Sloan, it's great to have you here. Thanks great very much. Great to be here. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you can get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, you offer something called Infinity Total Protection. What does that involve? The Infinity Total Protection provides a per-user pricing model for end-to-end -end security fabric. And by this, I mean your firewalls, your VPN, your IPS, but also your cloud security, your endpoint security, and your application security. What this provides is a very well-rounded uh, protective fabric that's got a single pane of glass, so it's easy to reduce your operating costs. For small to medium agencies, this is extremely valuable. It also means a predictable cost over a multi-year period, which often can save an agency 20 to 30% of their total cost investment in security. Wow, so talk about that nexus there, Jeremy, between security, and operational value. What should our listeners know here? Well, as Sean mentioned, the ease of management's great, but it also provides you that full spectrum of the Checkpoint software portfolio. And this gives you a uniform security posture, 
across your entire environment, and it keeps we keep it up to date with the latest uh, Gen 5 advanced threat protection. Hmm. So what about endpoints, Sean? How does this affect or impact visibility? Yeah, at the endpoints where your users sit is often the first point of attack. Having the protective fabric, the sandboxing on a phone or an endpoint, allows this fabric to discover zero-day attacks extremely quickly in an endpoint sandbox, explode those devices, find those first-day attacks or zero-day attacks, feed them into a threat intelligence cloud, and then inform the rest of the fabric in near real time. What this means is a small to medium agency can have an attack identified intelligently at the edge and then notified and updating the whole fabric as a community. So a much more proactive approach. Great info, Sean, Jeremy. Thanks again for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.